Well, hello and welcome to Ridge Church, wherever you're joining us from. Uh, my name is Dan. I'm one of the pastors here. And most of you will know the painting Starry Night. It's all over the place. It's, it's one of the most famous paintings in the world, likely. Uh, it's beautiful. It's blues and yellows, this, this picturesque scene. It's an impressionist painting by Vincent van Gogh. It's my mom's favorite. One of the gifts I got my mom uh, was a mug with Starry Night on it. It's, it's one of her most favorite paintings. It's something that sticks in the memory of each one of us. Most of us know the painting. Most of us even know who painted it, Vincent van Gogh. And most of us know a little bit, the guy who chopped his ear off, right? But most of us don't know the fullness of his story. Born in 1853 to an upper middle class family, Vincent grew up as a somber and quiet boy. After spending a short time as a missionary, interestingly enough, he abandoned his faith and turned to painting as a means of making sense of the world that frustrated him. Over the course of Vincent van Gogh's career, he was known to have a great love for alcohol and a penchant for extreme bouts of anger and psychotic breaks, including one with a friend, the artist Gauguin, which resulted in his decision to cut off part of his own left ear in order to make a point. Vincent van Gogh was a messy, but potentially a genius as well. He painted primarily landscapes. His famous paintings include things like sunflowers, wheat fields, olive groves, and of course, Starry Night itself. His impressionist style would eventually become the predominant influence on art in that era that we still experience to this day. But did you know that most of Vincent van Gogh's art was never really seen, appreciated, or given any value until after his death? At the young age of 37, van Gogh took his own life. In all, he had created over 2,100 works of art, more of 800 of which were the oil paintings that are now so familiar to each one of us by their style. Sorry Night, Sunflowers, Wheat Field with Crows are all these paintings that are beautiful and rich with texture and movement and all sorts of things that even if you're not an art person, you can appreciate as beautiful. His art became incredibly influential on the world, but it was only after his death that it occurred. And one of the last paintings he ever did was this. It's called At Eternity's Gate. Now, most of Van Gogh's paintings were of landscapes, were of scenes, were of spaces. And yet this painting, At Eternity's Gate, is a painting of a person. It's one of the few paintings of his that is more than a landscape, and, and frankly, it's, it's a little bit haunting, isn't it? It's a man with his head in his hands. We can't see his eyes or his mouth. We can't see his facial expression, but something about the way his head is draped in his hands says that he is filled with something terrible. He's sitting on what looks to be an uncomfortable wooden chair, and maybe worst and most haunting of all, he's alone. At eternity's gate, about to cross over to the other side. If I had described this painting with one word to capture the weight and the hauntingness, the haunting nature of it, the word I'd probably go to is regret. The person in this painting is filled with regret. Their head is in their hands. Maybe they're crying. Maybe they're angry. Maybe they're just not okay, but they're filled with regret. See, oftentimes it's in the face of death that draws out those regrets that people hold. Things that are said or unsaid that still haunt them. The decision they wish they could take back. The decision they wish they had made instead. 
the relationships that blew up that they wish hadn't, the relationships that never got started that they wish did, the sins that were kept hidden, that finally at the end of life come to the surface because they just can't hold on to the secret anymore. According to a research project that was aptly named the Regret Project in the United States, it was found with over 4,500 American adults that 82% of those adults could point to this, having significant regrets that they think about on a regular basis. 82% of adults, 82%, so all but maybe one in five could constant or regularly look at regrets that they have that have influenced their life. Of that 82%, over half, so over 40% of people listed as those regrets being on their mind either very frequently or all of the time. 40% of people, 80%, thinking about their regrets, considering what they wish they had done. Regret seems to be inevitable. Despite all our cultural cries for us to live without regrets, to step into our own truth, to simply accept that the heart wants what it wants, which is a lovely phrase until you consider that it was made popular by Woody Allen, who defended his marrying of his adopted daughter 30 years his junior. Sinatra in his song said, the regrets I've had a few, but then again too few to mention, and yet enough to get a line in a song. That there's something, there's something that pulls and tugs on each one of us. That there are things that we don't want to regret and yet we do. That all the pleasures and excitements that the world has to offer cannot seem to hold us back from the sense or the fear that what if we got it wrong? What if we didn't live well? What if we could look back and confidently say that we would do it all over again exactly the way that we had done it? How could we live without regrets? I think we wonder that, maybe not at the front of our minds, but at the back. Is there a way to make decisions and walk out of a way of life that could be described as a life that was lived without regrets, that on our deathbed, we didn't sit like the man with our head in our hands, wondering what could have been, wishing what we didn't or did do, wondering what would it have been if I hadn't made that mistake? But instead of our head in our hands, that our head was held high and our hands were open and ready to meet the creator face to face. To meet God face to face. To meet him and know him and be loved by him and step into eternity. Not afraid of what we had done in our lives. Well, according to Solomon in his reflections on wisdom in this passage, the best way to do that, the best way to live a life without regrets is, is not maybe what you'd think. It's not to listen to a TED Talk. It's not to read the latest book from Brené Brown, as, as good as the, her books are. It's not to buckle down, to become obsessively good, to worry all about being morally right and doing everything right and overanalyzing every decision. It's not any of those things. It's actually, interestingly to think about our own death. Here's what he writes in Ecclesiastes 7. He said, a good name is better than fine perfume. And the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. A good name, he's not referring to being from a good family. What he's referring to is being someone who has character, being someone who can look back at the end of their life and know that they lived well. It is better, he writes, to go to a house of mourning than to a house of feasting. 
since that is the end of all mankind, and the living should take it to heart. Grief is better than laughter, for when a face is sad, a heart may be glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of pleasure. Really? It's better to be in a house of mourning than of feasting? Now, now, I don't know about you, but I've never been at a wedding and wished I was at a funeral instead. I've rarely sat in tears at the bedside of someone who's in the hospital dying and, and not wished that I was on a beach and everything was okay with them, that all would be well. That the buzz of the fluorescent light of the hospital was not the light, but rather the sun was shining on us and everything was okay. Why would we possibly want to be in the house of mourning instead of the house of feasting. Why would we desire this? Yet, Solomon seems to tell us, it is when we think about our death that our life gains perspective. That we start to consider the things that really matter. That we think through the decisions, both big and small, that will form us into the person we really want to be. If you want to meet someone who's very clear on what matters to them, on what they'll spend their time doing, meet someone with a terminal diagnosis. Meet someone who knows that their time on this earth is limited, that their decisions, that their relationships, that what they put their energy and time into is not concerned with the pleasures of this world or just making it through the day. It's concerned about what really matters most. It's a concept that in the Latin has been known for years and years as memento mori. Memento mori, which again is a Latin phrase. You may have heard it before. In the English, it's translated as this, remember that you are dying. Remember that you are dying. You know, it's interesting, if you go back in Renaissance art and even before that, much of art that displays the saints of the early church, heroes of the faith who followed Jesus long before us, those who have walked the narrow path that we now seek to walk as followers of Jesus, it's really interesting. If you look back to a lot of paintings, you'll notice something. There's skulls, which is weird, right? Like you're trying to make this painting to demonstrate that this person loved Jesus and was a leader in the church and did whatever they did for the sake of the kingdom of God. And yet for some reason, a skull gets tossed in there. And like, I remember, I didn't even really grow up around the church, but I remember not being allowed to wear skulls on my Halloween costume because skulls are bad and skulls are evil. So what are all these church heroes doing with skulls? They're holding them. They're on a table beside them. They've got them all over the place in all sorts of art. Well, interestingly enough, a skull was a picture of wisdom. A skull being held by someone in a painting was to show that this person had considered their death had reckoned with the reality that their life was not permanent, had stepped into figuring out what really matters by accepting the reality that their life on this earth was finite. It's said of Ignatian monks in some monasteries that their rooms have only a couple things in them. Bibles or the scriptures to read and meditate upon, scrolls and a quill that they might write and take notes to consider their learnings and what God's showing them, and a skull oftentimes of the very monk who inhabited that room before them, to remind them that they are not permanent, that their life is but a breath, 
that they are walking into life. Um, it's said of one monastery I recently heard or read about that, that in the graveyard, which everyone had to pass from their rooms on the way to the kitchen to get their meal each day, there's a sign at the graveyard where all who had passed away in that place lived. The sign simply said this, where you are, we once were. Where we are, you shall be. Now that seems morbid, but for much of human history, to be aware and reckon well with one's death was a person's wisdom. To be able to look at our life and understand its non-permanent nature was an ability to be wise. Timothy Keller, uh, the pastor and theologian who recently passed away from pancreatic cancer at the age of 32, wrote a really interesting book. It's just a little one. It's called On Death with reflections on that reality, which we all must face. And he observed three reasons that we are often afraid to reflect on the end of our lives. Here's the three things. One, modern medicine. See, modern medicine is a gift and it is indeed that. It's been a dramatic increase in life expectancy. Now, I don't know the numbers, but what I do know is that it is much more likely for a person to live longer today than it was 50, 100, or 200 years ago. Recently, I was reading my grandfather. He's getting older. He's getting up there in years. And, and I got to read a little bit of his autobiography. He's been trying to write down his memories, his life. And, and I was caught off guard because in the first couple sentences, he describes his parents and, and, and they're moving from Romania over to Canada and, and he just quietly drops this line in there and he says, um, my grandfather uh, moved, uh, his wife died, three of the children died, and then three of my sisters died. And then he just carries on. And in my head, I have two sisters and two brothers. I, I can't imagine that their death would be one sentence. I can't imagine the idea that just um, eight or nine children being born to this family, two or three being lost, was actually pretty good. In fact, most early um, families in that era of time, one of three children would pass away from things like typhoid or polio. Things would happen. The, the reality is that today that death is tragic. By God's grace, we can help people live. And we found solutions to things like typhoid and polio. We've got medicine to help people. Things like cancer don't kill people in the way that it used to. Praise God for those advancements and those movements. It's a great gift. But this also allows us to, the idea to put off death. That through science and discovery, through modern medicine, death, we can push further and further and further back. We keep it in the background as a reality, but one that we don't have to think about. If we can get the right medicine, if we can get the right care, if we can get the right procedure, we'll be okay. And it leaves us unprepared that for the reality that no matter what happens, whether you are 100 or whether you are 50, we all will die. Secondly, and more personally, personal happiness holds us back. In our modern world, we have access to comfort and abundance that most of human history would not even imagine. Those things that you and I take for granted, hot water to bathe in, food that we can choose from. Think about that. How much of human history has been able to go to the store and choose what they eat? And most of us can't figure out what we want to make for dinner on any given night. Only, though, only this is the case, though, for those of us in a Western context with some form of money and finance to be able to take all the comfort, all the abundance that we want in the world. There's simply too much good stuff in life for me to think about death. Eat, drink, and be merry, but let's not think about the fact that tomorrow we die. 
There's too much stuff to avoid it. But the reality is that no distraction can keep us back from the reality that he who dies with the most toys still dies. Thirdly, a fear of insignificance. See, the most deep reality is likely that our realization that death means the end of our influence and our impression on the world. As Solomon reflected, what happens after we die will most likely be forgotten. Our legacy may last for a generation or two, but after that, it will be gone. Think about this. How many of you listening to this know the names of your great-grandparents? The names of your grandparents' parents. Can you name your great-grandfather, your great-grandmother? Impressive if you can. I I know I actually can't off the top of my head. How many of you can name your great-great-grandfather and grandmother? Or anything beyond that? See, in a century or so, we will all be forgotten. As the poet Anne Lamott puts it in one poem, in a hundred years, all new people. But this leaves us with the fear and the insecurity that what we have done is not enough. And the regrets pile up and like the man in the chair with his head in his hands, we wonder if we have lived well. It leaves us asking the haunting question that Lamott poses in another poem. If you are what you do and you fail, what then? If you are what you do and you fail, what then? And so in this fear, we fill our lives. We fill our lives with noise and distraction, with pictures of meaning to help us avoid the deep reality that each one of us is headed towards the grave. Memento mori, remember that you are dying, whether heartbreakingly too young or old without your faculties in need of others to care for you. Each one of us will die. That's your weekly dose of encouragement. Hopefully you can walk a joyful life in Christ from there. But, but seriously, as grim as this may seem, this actually can set us free to understand and pursue what matters. Author David Brooks points to two kinds of virtues that we seek to attain. And the first is resume virtues. Your skills, your accomplishments, your degrees, your qualifications, the job titles, your salary achievements, the projects you completed, the ladders that you climbed. These are the things that we put on a resume to impress our boss. That when we apply at a new job, we want someone to know so that they might hire us, they might respect us, they might give us a decent salary. But they're the same things that we would put on a resume are not the things we'd want said at our funeral. Man, I think about the reality that one day I will die. I, I sure hope Jaleesa doesn't stand up and say, Dan Steenson worked a lot of hours. He wrote a lot of sermons. He was busy all of the time and And he got a lot of education. He did tons of classes. He wrote a number of papers. I'd be heartbroken to know that that was the legacy I had left behind. And so Solomon writes, it's better to go to a house of mourning than it is to go to a house of feasting, since that is the end of all mankind and the living should take this to heart. Because eulogy virtues are different, right? Kindness, honesty, the quality of our relationships, the way that we've cared for others, the joy that we've brought into the world. Last year, I joined a group of young pastors developing and growing in our leadership and ministry, and we were invited into this exercise, actually built around this passage that we're talking about today. We were invited to begin to write our own eulogy. We were invited to consider who are the most important people and most important voices in our life. 
to think about the trajectory of our lives is what we are doing now leading to the kind of eulogy that we hope someone might give, not for our own glory, but for the direction and the sake of knowing what matters. And there was this question that was posed to us that I want to pose to you today. When one day, whether it's soon or a long way off, your life on this earth ends and you are face to face with Jesus who gave his life for you, that each one of us longs to hear those words of Jesus, well done, good and faithful servant. Here's the question. What is your well done? What is your well done? What is the thing that God has placed you on this earth to do? And then we reverse engineer the process. If this is the aim, if this is the goal, then what am I doing now to take me to that point? To quote Stephen Covey's Habits of Highly Effective People, this is beginning with the end in mind on a cosmic scale. Is the way that I live and work and all that I do leading towards the well done that I hope to receive from Jesus someday? Here's how C.S. Lewis describes this looking forward to heaven. He says, the continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking. It's one of the things a Christian is meant to do. It doesn't mean that we are to leave the present world as it is. If you read history, you'll find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire. The great men who built up the Middle Ages. The English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade all left their mark on earth. Why? Precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so effective in this one. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. Wisdom, which is the stated aim of the author of Ecclesiastes for us as the reader, is found not in thinking about life and everything that we can squeeze out of it and live your best life now and FOMO and whatever it may be, but rather the goal of wisdom is to reshape us to live towards what matters. And so with that in mind, Solomon begins to write what seems to be short but intense statements about what it looks like to live wisely from verses 7 to 22 that we read earlier. And it's a distinct shift in tone from the rest of the book of Ecclesiastes that's moving from more narrative writing to one which is more poetic. In fact, this section of Ecclesiastes reads much more like the book of Proverbs than it does in previous chapters. See, these verses aren't meant to be quickly explained or sped through with haste, but rather they're meant to be considered, meditated upon, and given space to roll around in our minds like a rock in a tumbler, getting rid of the dirt and the grime that it might produce something beautiful. These verses are less like a fast food order that we eat in the car. Think about it, right? McDonald's fries are good for about two minutes and then they're disgusting. You have to eat them as fast as you can. They're less like that kind of a fast food order and more like a multiple course meal to be eaten and savored, more like a filet mignon than a McDouble. Here's how Tim Keller describes the idea of wisdom literature in this form and frame. He says, wisdom literature is not a set of simple steps to a happy life for quick consumption. A proverb, which is not just the book, but the concept of Hebrew writing, a proverb is a poetic art form that instills wisdom the more you are willing to wrestle with it. Scripture is for our experience, not our consumption. 
which is why we need to learn to wrestle with scripture, not just read it, to sit with scripture and not just give it a once over, to meditate on scripture and talk about scripture with our communities. We have to learn how to savor scripture or it will simply become a check mark on our list of the duties of a Christian life. Lectio Divina, or divine reading, is a form of meditation on Scripture that draws us deeper into the text, not simply to garner more information or to prove our fidelity to God, but to hear his voice through his word. In John 10, Jesus is speaking. He says, truly I tell you, anyone who doesn't enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in some other way is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. And the gatekeeper opens it for him and the sheep hear his voice. He calls the sheep his own and he leads them out by name. When he has brought all his own outside, he goes ahead of them. Why? The sheep follow him because they know his voice. My friends, the marker of our discipleship is not our Bible knowledge. It's not how many Bible studies we have participated in. It's not how many Christian programs we've signed up for. It's not how many times you've done a read through the Bible in a year. Those are all good things. Those are all beautiful things. We highly encourage those things. But the marker of our discipleship to Jesus is not those things. The marker of our discipleship as sheep to the shepherd who is Christ is our ability to hear his voice. And there's so much in these verses that needs to be chewed on and considered, not simply flown through. Think about it. Verse nine, don't let your spirit rush to be angry for anger abides in the heart of fools. Sure, we can rush through that. Hey guys, don't be angry. All right, moving on. Verse 11, wisdom is as good as an inheritance and an advantage to those who seek the sun. Okay, be wise, good advice. All right, let's carry on. Verse 13, consider the work of God. Who can straighten out what he has made crooked? Okay, think about God. God's in control, sounds good, move on. Verse 13, consider the work of God. Pardon me, verse 19, wisdom makes the wise person stronger than 10 rulers of a city. Okay, wisdom's better than money. Wisdom's better than power. All right, let's move on. Verse 21, don't pay attention to everything people say, or you may hear your servant cursing you, but you know in your heart that you have many times yourself have cursed others. All right, be aware of other people's influence and what voices you let in. Sweet, I've got all the principles. I've got all the thoughts. I've got all the pleasant things. I'm good to go. Let's just keep moving, but we can't do that. Why? Because the scriptures as the Hebrew people saw them, and as we ought to see them, are meditation literature. It's literature that we think about and consider and roll around in our minds and talk about and let it sit and marinate in our minds and our souls. The scriptures are meditation literature. What they're not is performative literature. The scriptures are not a play. Hear, hear me out. Please don't place the burden of scripture reading and scripture understanding on those of us, myself, Jonathan, the rest of our pastoral team, who vocationally study and teach it. Please do not put the weight of that on us. God's word is living and active. What caused the Reformation, what began the Reformation was not just the courage of the saints, but the ability of the printing press to allow people to read. That all people who are able to read actually have a gift of being able to enter into the scriptures, God's living and active word, that they might experience his voice. Please don't depend on me communicating it to you. Enter into the story. Let God speak to you through his scriptures, not rely on someone else. That's like letting someone else chew your food and spit it out for you. It's also not informational literature. The Bible is not meant to be used like a cheat sheet for a test that is life. 
The book of Genesis is not a science textbook and Revelation is not a step-by-step guide to how to survive an apocalypse. All scripture is written for us, but not all scripture is written to us. We need to understand things like context and literary style and the intended audience in order to make sense of what God is communicating to you and I today and in this moment. Finally, the scriptures are not argumentative literature to be cherry-picked for arguments, to make me look smart and others look stupid. When Paul wrote that the word of God was the sword of the spirit, I don't think he means that you should go around stabbing people. The aim of you knowing the scriptures is not to make others look silly. It's that you might put on the sword of the spirit along with the full armor of God to engage in warfare in the spiritual realm. Hebrews 4.12 says the word of God is living and it's active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. I had a friend that, that I went back and forth for years with that I so longed for him to know Jesus and we argued and we went back and forth and we did this and we did that. And I, and I just wondered, is this guy ever gonna get it? Is he ever gonna understand? And one day he came to me and he said, Dan, I've given my life to Jesus. And, and in my head, I was like, oh, it must be because of something I said. What did I do? What was the apologetic? Which, did I send him like this argument or this thing? Or, or what did I do that convinced him? Uh, and I said, you know, my friend, what, what, Mitch, what caused this? And, and he said, I read the book of John. I've never read anything like it. I've never encountered a person like Jesus. I read it and then I read it again and I couldn't help but give my life to this Jesus. See, we become wise when we live out the invitations that the teacher is giving us when we actually take them into our hearts and our minds and our bodies and let them shape us. Verse five and six, it says, it's better to listen to a rebuke from a wise person than to listen to the song of fools. For like the crackling of burning thorns under the pot, so is the laughter of the fool. You know what the best kind of campfire is? My, my parents taught me this when we went camping as kids. It's not the thing that has lots of flames and is big, but goes out in two seconds. It's the campfire that doesn't have many flames, but has good embers. That's what you want to cook your hot dog and marshmallows on. Embers that aren't going to get put out by a little bit of rain or the wrong breath. Something deep and sustaining that will burn long and slow. And why press in so hard on this? Why, why am I pushing so hard that we need to meditate and, and spend time in the word and not just get it from sermons or podcasts or devotions written by other people? Because we have an assumed notion that age and wisdom run in parallel to one another. The older one gets, the more wise someone gets. But as psychologists, <clears throat> pardon me, as psychologist John Dewey reflected, we do not learn from experience. We learn on reflecting on experience. And I would add that we do not grow in wisdom by reading the scripture. We grow in wisdom by letting the scripture shape us in both solitude and community. Having scripture as information in your mind is not the same thing as letting the scripture change you. That living and active word of God doing what it needs to do. Scripture is not an end in and of itself. It's a means by which God wants to do two things in our lives. And the first is encounter. That's what Jesus is talking about, hearing the voice of God. We believe that the Bible is living and active, that the spirit of God works through his written word to speak to us what God wants to speak. That by considering and meditating on his written word, we're not simply getting more info, we're being transformed and encountering the reality of the living and risen Jesus. But secondly, transformation. 
2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, many of you know this. All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness. But why? So that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Even as we meditate on scripture, we are shaped by it. Even as we become more wise and more knowledgeable through God's word, even for Solomon though, who became the most wise person ever to live, to be full of wisdom is still to be haunted by the reality that something is missing. Here's what he continues on in in Ecclesiastes 7. He says, I tested all this by wisdom. I resolved that I will be wise, but it was beyond me. What exists is beyond reach. It's too deep. Who can discover it? I turn my thoughts to know and to explore and to examine wisdom and an explanation for things and to know that wickedness is stupidity and folly is madness. There's, there's part of Solomon that's going, I'm doing all the right things. I want wisdom. I'm meditating on God's word. I'm getting all the right info. I'm thinking about it. I'm chewing on it. I, I, I've considered my death. I'm thinking through all these things. That's what the book of Ecclesiastes is. And yet it's beyond reach. It's too deep. It's inexhaustible. No matter how deep we dive into the desire for wisdom, even properly found wisdom in God's word, something is still missing. Matthew 23, Jesus gets in an interaction with the Pharisees. It's brutal. He calls them a brood of vipers. He calls them whitewashed tombs. He talks about the the fate, or pardon me, the the reality that awaits them, the punishment that they're going to face for, for wrongly following God. Do you know who knew the scriptures better than anyone? The Pharisees. And it's something in the knowing of the scriptures without a lived experience of what the scriptures were trying to form in them meant that Jesus called out the Pharisees that their Bible knowledge could not save them. They knew every book, every chapter, every verse, every letter, and yet something deeper lingered that no amount of knowledge, no amount of Bible study, no amount of theological depth could ever solve. Our problem is not a lack of information. Our problem is sin. Our problem is sin. Something dark inside us that goes beyond our brain, beyond our ability to make wise decisions. It goes deeper than our Christian activity and even our well-crafted theology like Lady Macbeth, who in the Shakespeare play Macbeth, upon feeling the guilt of her participation in the murder of the king to place her husband on the throne, dreams of blood all over her hands. And no matter how hard she tries, she can't wash it out. No matter how many times she scrubs her hands, no matter how much soap she puts there, no matter how much water she runs over it, it won't work. She says, out damn spot, out I say. Here's the smell of blood still. All the perfume of Arabia cannot sweeten this little hand. No matter what, I can't get that little dark thing inside of me out. The shame and the guilt of sin. And it's in many ways that the shame and inability to get past brokenness of our sin is a reflection of how Solomon closes this chapter. He writes this, I find more bitter than death the woman who is a trap. Her heart is a net and her hands are chains. The one who pleases God will escape her, but the the sinner will be captured by her. Look, says the teacher, I've discovered this by adding one thing to another and finding out the explanation which my soul continually searches for but cannot find. I found maybe one person in a thousand, but none of those was a woman. Now, at first glance, this would indicate that Solomon is simply a sexist. He blames women for all the issues he has. And and really what he seems to be saying is that no one can be wise and certainly not a woman. That's maybe the surface reading of that passage, but But noting that no woman could ever be wise, a broader look at Solomon's story points that his words here are perhaps blaming, 
placed on another for his own sin. In 1 Kings 11, we get a picture in Solomon's life. It says, King Solomon loved many foreign women in addition to Pharaoh's daughter. Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidoniite, Hittite women from the nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them and they must not intermarry with you because they will turn your heart away to follow their gods. To these women, Solomon was deeply attached in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 who were concubines and they turned his heart away. When Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away to follow other gods. He was not wholeheartedly devoted to the Lord, his God, as his father David had been. Solomon followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Milcom, the abhorrent idol of the Ammonites. Solomon did what was evil in the Lord's sight. And unlike his father, he did not remain loyal to the Lord. For all of Solomon's wisdom, he could not overcome his sin. For all of Solomon's desire to live well, to consider his own death, to look at the lay of the land and the reality of how things are. For all those realities, Solomon could not do one thing, overcome his sin. For him, it was sex. For you, it's something else. The darkness that goes deeper than the information exchange or the behavior modification. What I wonder today, if you're listening to this, is what you need to follow Jesus today, truly, to go the next step in your faith journey is not more information, it's to kill your sin. It's not another Bible study. It's not another book to read. It's not another thing to do that you can check off. It's to kill your sin, your hidden sin that no one knows about and you have learned how to hide expertly well. Those things that are deep and quiet that no one knows, your family doesn't know, your friends don't know, your community group doesn't know, nobody knows, but God does. And God's inviting you to lay it down. Your unrepentant sin those sins which you've just gotten comfortable with. They're not big, they're not obvious, but they're there, but let's just not worry about them. And I'm not talking about struggle where you're fighting against sin and failing and meeting the grace of God. I'm talking about hitting a point where you just don't care anymore. Where you just say, whatever, this is just part of my addiction. This is just part of my reality. I'm just never gonna get over this. And you're dismissing sin in your life and subtle sin. Sure, it may not be a pornography addiction or an affair. It may not be stealing. It may not be hurting people or murdering people, but it's the bitterness. It's the unforgiveness. It's the places you're refusing to allow God to speak into. A spirit of unbelief, an unwillingness to love others for who they really are. Those subtle sins that sneak in. See, Solomon closes this section with a simple reflection where I think he takes stock of his own life. He says, only I see this. I've discovered that God made people upright, but they've pursued many, many schemes. There in his own words earlier in Ecclesiastes, he said, eternity has been written on our hearts. There's something in us as human beings that wants to follow God, wants to live a good life, wants to sit on our deathbed, not like the man with his head in his hands, but rather proud and confident of what we have done in this life. And yet sin is the great divider, which leads to our chasing of our dreams, of our schemes, and of our sins. That no matter how hard we try to become wise, wisdom cannot save us. For many today, I wonder if you're hitting a wall in a faith, maybe you've been hitting that wall for decades, that you've been walking through your faith, wondering if you'll ever get over this sin, if you'll ever live well, and you've distracted yourself away, 
or you've convinced yourself that if I become wise and if everything looks good on the outside, that everything's okay. As long as I'm wise, then I'm all right. Let me say this clearly. Wisdom can't save you. Jesus can. 1 Corinthians 1, Paul writes this, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are pairing perishing, but it is the power of God to those of us who are being saved. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and I will set aside the intelligence of the intelligent. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the debater of this age? Hasn't God made the world's wisdom foolishness? For since in God's wisdom, the world did not know God through wisdom. Wisdom is great. Wisdom is beautiful. Wisdom ought to be pursued, but it's not how we know God. The world did not know God through wisdom. God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of what we preach. For the Jews ask for signs and the the Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Yet those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and Christ is the wisdom of God. Because God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Wisdom can't save you, but Jesus can. And that's the point. The tension that that Solomon builds up in the book of Ecclesiastes, where he seems to say this is how we live and yet it's all for naught. The cries of futility that he keeps lamenting with, the life under the sun that he's marred and poisoned by the disease of sin creates this desire, this tension, this need to say, how is this going to work out? How can we possibly live this way? How will it be okay? No matter what you do, we seem hopeless. All is hevel. All is futile. Is there anyone who could live out wisdom perfectly? Even if Solomon falls in all his wisdom, falls prey to this kind of sin, then what hope is there for me? Jesus is our hope. Jesus at the cross is where we cling, that we might approach the throne of God with confidence and not with fear. Let me show you that Van Gogh painting again. The man filled with regret at eternity's gate, wondering what awaits him. But I want to show you another painting by the artist Rembrandt. It's called The Return of the Prodigal Son. I love this painting. You see the son. He looks a lot like the man in the chair, doesn't he? His head is in his hands. He's, he's kneeled down. He can't stand up. He's, he's worn. He's ragged. He's dirty. And yet he's not alone. He's being welcomed home by the father who loves him. You know the story. Let me close with it. So the son got up and he went to his father. While the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran and threw his arms around his neck and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I sinned against heaven and in your sight, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father told his servants, quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet, then bring the fattened calf and slaughter it. Let us celebrate with a feast because this son of mine was dead, but is alive again. He was lost and now is found. And they began to celebrate, my friends. In our regrets, 
and our mistakes and our sin and our lack of wisdom as we fail to live up to our own expectations and feel the tension of a broken world and the fear of our insignificance at our impending death. We are met by God, not with the reality of sitting alone in our brokenness, longing for someone to care, but rather the open arms of a father who runs to us that we might be welcomed home. Would you take hope and joy in that? Wisdom can't save you, but Jesus can respond that you might give your life to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much that you welcome us with all our sin, all our regret, all our brokenness, whether we have lived wisely or foolishly, you welcome us home. Oh, that you would be the father that would comfort and hold us. That our regrets, that our mistakes, that our sin, and that our shame could not take away from the reality that you, Jesus, Jesus gave your life for us. That we might be set free. That we might be set free to look at our death and know that it's not the end. To know that our sin doesn't get the last word. To know that our shame doesn't get the last word. To know that even our attempts at wisdom do not get the last word. But rather, King Jesus, that you get the last word. And that you, Father, have proclaimed that it is finished over our lives by the blood of Jesus and the work of the cross. So we thank you for that reality today. We pray that that would be experienced for each one of us. And that even as we pursue wisdom, even as we consider the finite reality of our lives, our eyes would be set on you, Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, that we might go after heaven and get earth thrown in. We pray all these, these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.